We're at seven minutes after five o'clock here on this Saturday morning, and good morning to you, Orion Samuelson, with you for our weekly visit to talk about the most important industry on the planet, food production. Now we add to that fuel production with ethanol and biodiesel and all sorts of things that we've added to the uh, roundup for what we produce on our fields across America. And right now, uh, we're looking at a temperature at my house at uh, Huntley, Illinois. My temperature, 36 degrees. Uh, Not quite at frost, but maybe some of the low-lying areas are showing frost on the windshield or on the fields this morning. And uh, it's going to warm up a little bit today. And uh, we should have a fairly nice fall weekend. And so, uh, a lot going on. Jim Fazell standing by to uh, talk about gardening as we wind down that season. And uh, a little bit later this morning, we're going to uh, visit with Mike Pearson, who's going to talk to an author who wrote a book on um, dealing with the commodity markets. So uh, that'll be interesting to talk to and talk about this morning. But uh, we'll stand by for Jim Fazell, and he will join us when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Haven't seen any frost yet in my backyard here in Huntley, Illinois, but let's check in with uh, our friend Jim Fazell, whose yard is in Park Ridge, Illinois. Any frost over the weekend so far, Jim? No frost so far, so we're dodging the bullet, so to speak, I suppose, out in some of the far reaches that uh, cooled off a lot more quickly than we did here closer to the city, that there may be some frost. But a lot of places have not had a freeze yet, although we know that some have, especially if you get up across the border into Wisconsin. uh, There are some areas there that have had some freeze. But whether you've had a freeze or not, it's time to bring plants in from the garden. And I hope if you had a freeze that you protected those plants that you want to save because we've talked in the past about throwing a blanket over them and that they'll, they'll survive the frost. And uh, you can continue to pick them if you want to, or you can dig them out and be done with them. Actually, the things that need to come in right now are your houseplants. You know, a lot of us put houseplants out for the, for the summer to give them a vacation. Houseplants, sometimes the exotic plants, uh, hibiscus, the weeping fig. You know, I have a friend that has an orange tree and a lemon tree, and in fact, he has a fig tree, too. But he has a solarium where he can bring these in. I, I swear he must hire somebody, a trucker to come in and move them because they're big and they're heavy. But they go out and they come back in, and they grow from year to year, and they're taken care of very nicely, and they continue to grow. Houseplants, uh, we grew a lot of orchids for a long time and bloom, would bloom them nicely. Uh, if you have orchids outdoors or azaleas or poinsettias for forcing, those need to come in at the same time. Now, any of these plants that are in pots need to be brought into a place where you can hose off all the dirt and so forth on the pots, clean the pots off very nicely, and the plants too. Sometimes they need to be dusted off or they've got leaves and so forth, so clean them up so that they're in presentable condition to bring them in. And also, you need to inspect very carefully for insects or slugs. 
Um, some of these plants will attract slugs down in the pots, so you need to check to make sure that you don't have them down there. And one of the way to, uh, ways of doing that is check the drain hole at the bottom. Often they'll go in through the drain hole, they'll spend the day there and come out at night. But treat them if you need to, and there are all kinds of slug baits that can be used. But then you want to acclimate these plants. You need to bring them in into uh, maybe an unheated port, someplace where they're not going to be exposed to the heat of uh, heating indoors for a while. You need to acclimate them so that they gradually get used to the indoor conditions. Then you can move them into the winter spot before the heating season essentially begins, although for some of us it has. Uh, they need the uh, the house plants need to be in a in a cool, bright place. You don't want to put them next to a register, and they need to be where they get bright, but not direct sunlight, because direct sunlight through glass is quite different than it is uh, out in the open. Not with the exotic plants like the orchids or the poinsettias or the azaleas. These take special treatment, particularly if you want them to flower for you. Orchids, each orchid variety seems to have a preference. Uh, we grew a lot of cymbidiums. They like a cool temperature with normal day length, 55 degrees at night, maybe 75 degrees during the day. By normal day length, I mean no artificial light. That means the uh, they need to be put in a room where you're not going to turn the lights on. Now, that's even more important for poinsettias because these flower when the day length is shortened, but that conversely means that the nights are lengthened. When you have a night that's 12, 14 hours long or even longer than that later in the winter, that's when these plants begin to flower. Now, if you turn a light on during that dark period, you no longer have a un, uh, an uninterrupted long dark period. You have two short dark periods. So poinsettias in particular, if you're going to flower these, be absolutely sure that you do not turn lights on after the sun sets or before the sun comes up in the morning. That means uh, you need to put them in an unused room someplace. An alternative, if you can't find a place to put them like that, they need to go in a spot where you can put a paper bag, in fact, a good grocery bag over the top of them to keep them in the dark when you happen to turn the lights on. It's best if you put them in a place where, where they're not going to get any light. Now, I know some people put them in a closet. That works very well. But uh, I've had people call and say, I put my poinsettia in the closet at Halloween, and I just looked at it, and it's Thanksgiving, and it's dead. I said, well, do you take it out every day? Well, no. You have to bring it out every day because it needs the sunshine and light to keep growing. And then you put it away and let it sleep for a long night. But that's that's a particular kind of plant. And uh, there are some other plants that, that, that require an uninterrupted dark period. But we generally don't grow those as houseplants in this part of the country. Now, there are other things that can come in for the, for the winter. And one of the things we like to bring in is the pot herb. Pot herbs like chives, basil, uh, parsley in particular can be brought in. They can be grown under lights or in a kitchen window uh, for use during the wintertime. They continue to grow if they have growing conditions. And you can clip off a little bit of chive or maybe snip off some basil or parsley when you need it during the, during the winter. Uh, you want to select only the best plants. These will be ones that are clean out in the garden. You don't want them too big or too small. You need to dig them up, shake off as much soil off the bottom of them, and pot them up. Now, you need to use potting soil, not garden soil, because if you put garden soil in a pot, it does not drain, and these things will drown. So you need to get rid of as much of the garden soil as you can. I like to use uh, these artificial potting mixes that you can buy at any garden center or hardware store. Uh, they work very nicely. Pot the plants up with that stuff. They need to be shaped up. Uh, they tend to get out of shape when they're outdoors. 
Shear them back to a shape that's convenient for you so that they fit where you're going to keep them and that they grow evenly. And those two you need to treat for bugs or diseases or whatever may have come in with them, and you need to acclimate them. Then you need to set them in a bright, cool, humid place. I mentioned the the uh, kitchen windowsill. Uh, those tend to be cool and they tend to be humid because kitchens stay that way, and if it's over the sink, you know you're going to have good humidity. Uh, an alternative, alternative would be to construct a place for them with an indoor lighting system, and we've done it both ways. Both ways work. Uh, that's uh, a real nice way to extend the summer throughout the winter if you can. Uh, be sure that you make entries in your garden journal when you do these things. You know, when you brought the plants in, what, what ones you brought in, how they survived, did they lose a lot of leaves, what was the weather like? Did we have a dark, cold winter where you have very little light indoors, or did we have a bright, nice winter? So keep your garden journal up to date. Now, one other thing I want to mention, there's time to continue with our, our finish-up garden chores. One of the things I, I've been doing this myself is to label all the perennials, and that includes the ones that you're going to want to divide or replace for next year. But labor the other ones, too, because you don't know what the weather's going to do during the winter. It may kill some of these off. And unless you've labeled them, you don't know what was there, so you don't know how to replace it. Then make a map of your garden. And on that map, you can begin to make plans for what changes you're going to make for next year. One last thing I want to mention about your garden chore right now, and we're going to finish up the garden completely in a couple of weeks, but the the, uh, uh, bulbs, the corms, of tender perennials like dahlias, uh, tuberoses, uh, uh, tuberous begonias, uh, gladiolus, these need to be dug up. They need to be dug up as soon as the tops begin to go down. That's now. You need to dig these up. Uh, these root-like structures underground need to be stored indoors in dry boxes, uh, maybe with sawdust or peat moss or even in in bags. One thing I might caution you is that many of these have the buds that are going to grow next year, particularly dahlias. So be very careful with them so that you don't break these buds off or when you plant these tubers for the next year, they're not going to grow. The buds have to be there. So there are quite a few things that can be done uh, right now, interesting things. Um, Actually, garden uh, closing up the garden and getting done with the garden is a long-time operation. It should take you several weeks to do it. Don't try to do it in one day. Uh, Time is short, but steady is the way to approach this. Uh, And a little time here and there gets the the job done. So make it fun. Enjoy the outdoors. It'll soon be time to retire indoors. So we need to be ready, but enjoy it while you can. And I have one tomato question, courtesy of Gloria. She has quite a few little green tomatoes on the plant yet, and they've been covered, so they haven't frozen. But uh, do you have a suggestion for her on when they should come indoors and uh, what she should do with them? Uh, They can come indoors, uh, but you don't want to bring them in quite yet. When temperatures get so they're steadily in the 50s, that's time to bring these indoors. Uh, And I know that plant can be brought in and can be put inside uh, near your patio and that nice sliding door that you have with plenty of sunlight, and they'll do very well there uh, throughout a good part of the the fall. Uh, But these plants eventually wear out indoors. They they, uh, even wear out if you're growing them in a greenhouse commercially. They eventually wear out, and you need to replace them. So that's the time that that you need to do something to get rid of them. Um, Also, you can pick these as soon as they begin to get what I call ripe white. When you look at a tomato, it's green, it's green, and green, and eventually it begins to turn white, then it starts to turn pink from the bottom. When it gets to that ripe white, 
the stem of the uh, vine has done all it can for these and you can pick them off you can keep them in a cool bright place and they will begin to ripen it might take two three four weeks but they will ripen and then you can use them or you can have fried green tomatoes is that true too <laughs> that's absolutely true and they're good depends on what you what you uh, use for uh, what do you call it that you dip them in uh, but they can be really good uh, any of the tomatoes can be done you can do that with any of the tomatoes except maybe the little cherry tomatoes it would be difficult but that makes a good good change for the diet and they're good for you too Okay, I'll pass that on to Gloria and uh, to our friends who are listening who maybe want to ripen these little green tomatoes. And uh, what have we got? A week or two left to visit here on Saturday morning, Jim? We do. We'll finish up on Halloween, as as, uh, my calendar says. In fact, it will be Halloween Day on the 31st. I gotcha. Have a good gardening wrap-up, and uh, again, we thank Jim Fazell, our specialist in ornamental horticulture, who joins us during the growing season every weekend here on the Saturday Morning Show. We're at 23 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday Morning Show, and a little chilly, but not as cold as it has the past several mornings. Right now, we're at 37 degrees on my thermometer here in Huntley, Illinois, and it looks like the start of a very nice day. We may get some rain, though, uh, before the weekend comes to an end, and uh, that could mean combines will be parked for an hour or or two or more, depending on how much of it falls during the harvest weekend. We're at 23 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. Time for us to say welcome to Samuelson Says. I'm Orion, and this week, a lighter subject. This isn't the start. Before I got here, I started training, and before that... I did something to my back. But my first move was Athletico Physical Therapy. That's where I'd eventually end up, so why not start there? I mean, my therapist immediately found the source of my pain. These are the same physical therapists who work with elite marathon runners. So soon, I was back to running, but without pain. (sighs) You got this. It all starts at Athletico. Schedule your free assessment at athletico.com. I don't know about you, but you've heard me say this often the past few months. I'm getting tired of constantly talking about COVID-19, hurricanes in the Gulf, wildfires in California, and derecho windstorms in the Midwest. So this week, as we approach Halloween, how about something on the lighter side? Many communities hold world championship pumpkin-growing competitions each year, but this year I want to talk about the one that has been going on for 47 years at Half Moon Bay, California, just south of San Francisco. They call it the annual world championship way off for pumpkins. This year, that competition was won by Travis Ginger, who is an ag teacher at Anoka Technical College in Anoka, Minnesota. The pumpkin named Tiger King after the TV show of the same name won the competition, the prize money, $7 a pound. But in order to compete, and here comes the hooker, In order to compete, the pumpkin had to be in Half Moon Bay, California, to be judged. So, 
Travis had to load his pumpkin onto his truck, drive for 35 hours from Anoka, Minnesota, to the Half Moon Bay competition in California. And in order to grow pumpkins for this competition, Travis had to water his plants up to 10 times a day and fertilize them two times a day. But despite the 35 hours of driving and all of that work to grow the pumpkin, it was worth it because the winning pumpkin weighed 2,350 pounds, more than a ton. So Travis went home with $16,450, which made it worth the 35-hour drive. So congratulations to Travis, and thank you, Travis, for giving me something else to talk about. Be safe, be well. My thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of Nextar Media Group. And indeed, uh, the one thing I haven't done yet this morning that I have to do every Saturday on the Saturday morning show, give you the coronavirus case count. And here is the information according to the national and international report. Worldwide coronavirus cases now at 39,290,000. The death toll at a million one hundred two thousand seven hundred seven. That's the worldwide coronavirus case count as of this morning at 28 minutes after 5 o'clock. And uh, it used to be that at this time of the morning, I'd give you the livestock count at the Union Stockyards in Chicago. But now we have to add this one to our report as well to bring it up to date. And that's the latest deadly count for the coronavirus, the COVID-19 situation. I do want to mention that today is a very uh, special day for people in rural America who have a Blaine's Farm and Fleet close by because Christmas starts today at Blaine's Farm and Fleet. And that means that Toyland makes its debut for this season today at your Blaine's Farm and Fleet. They they have been doing that for a long time, and it has become a Christmas shopping custom at communities in rural America that have a Blaine's Farm and Fleet close by. So uh, let me say congratulations to the folks at Farm and Fleet, and thank you for uh, giving us something a little brighter to talk about than COVID-19. Blaine's Farm and Fleet officially opens at 7 a.m. today. Toyland and the Kids Helping Kids Toy Drive through Christmas Day, helping make wishes come true and spreading holiday spirit for families in the communities that are served by Blaine's Farm and Fleet. And a little note on that, Toyland began as a way for my dad, Bert, and Uncle Claude, the founders of Blaine's Farm and Fleet, to say thank you to their friends, family, 
and neighbors, transforming a portion of the store into a magical toyland. That, according to Jane Blaine Gilbertson, Blaine's farm and fleet owner and president, she went on to say, my dad used to say that every child deserves to have a Merry Christmas, and especially since this has been a tough year, we're here to support each community and help provide a memorable holiday to all families. Blaine's Farm and Fleet Christmas Toyland starts today. And it'll go through Christmas Day. So Merry Christmas to the folks at Blaine's. And, uh, well, to all of you as you get an early start on your Toyland shopping for your kids. We're at the 5.30 mark here on the Saturday morning show. And we have a lot more for you from now till 6 o'clock on the Saturday morning show. We're at 26 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. Still 37 degrees on my thermometer in the backyard here in Huntley, Illinois. And another word that I'm getting tired of using when I talk about agricultural meetings and events, virtual, because we got the word this week that the uh, first big convention in the new year, the American Farm Bureau Federation, will be virtual this year. They're going to hold the uh, convention in San Diego, California, but it'll mostly be without a lot of people because the rules in San Diego that deal with the COVID-19 situation say you can't have big crowds. So it'll be a virtual convention for the American Farm Bureau Federation in San Diego, California, and you'll be able to get information on how you can watch it virtually without being with a lot of people. And so watch your Farm Bureau magazine or news page, whatever, wherever you get Farm Bureau information, watch that and you'll get details on how you can participate virtually in the Farm Bureau Convention. You were planning a trip to San Diego? I don't think so. You won't be able to make it. And speaking of virtual, as long as we're on the subject, and next week it will be the National FFA Convention. Normally, uh, we have quite a number, thousands of FFA members and their blue jackets take over the city of Indianapolis. There will be a few in Indianapolis for the convention, but it will be done virtually as well. So watch your FFA newsletter and you'll get the information on how you'll be able to participate virtually in the FFA convention. The uh, year that's coming to an end, the county fairs and the state fairs and the farm progress shows and the Ohio Farm Science Review and all of the other events that make up a normal summer season uh, just not happening because of the COVID-19 situation. But It's important that you be safe and that you be well and look forward to attending personally the conventions in the year 2021. 
20, uh, no, it's 18 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show and time to check the market activity. And we'll do that uh, when we continue with uh, Mike Pearson and his guest on the Saturday morning show. To help us make sense of the markets, this week we're joined by Elaine Cub. She's the author of Mastering the Grain Markets. And Elaine, when we think about this month of October, we have seen a ton of balance sheets adjustments from the quarterly grain stocks at the end of September to last week's World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates. When you think about how your balance sheet has changed just from July on the corn side of the ledger, where do we go from here? The corn side of the ledger, I would say, uh, you know, really, we're, we're in the same boat. We still are likely to have enough of it. The industry is not going to feel that there's a particularly tight or dramatically sh- dramatic shortage of corn. So I don't think that there's enough uh, tightness in the corn supply and demand to really spur much of a rally. But it has been interesting this week that the script has sort of changed, that corn became the star. Right overnight into Thursday morning, that nearby contract did hit just exactly $4.00 for the first time since last harvest. It was almost exactly a year ago today that that continuous chart hit that that benchmark. And then I'm sure it ran into lots of selling interest because you'll have a lot of limit orders just sitting there right at that $4 mark to, to keep a lid on that for now. And, you know, Elaine, you, you said something interesting. This week, we've really seen the pullback. Starting on Monday, we saw a, a big drawdown both in corn and soybean prices. We saw the continue again off and on throughout the week. Is that an indication to you that perhaps prices are getting a little toppy? Yes, especially when you consider the makeup of the market, that there is more open interest and soybean futures especially now than there has ever been. And a lot of that is weighted into the speculators who have been driven by the mechanism of the Chinese buying. That's legitimate bullishness. And you mentioned the, the, the shortageness in the, in the quarterly grain stocks and the supply and demand estimates have really tightened up for soybeans. So that was bullish confirmation of that $1.50 rally that we've seen. But now that we've seen it, what else is there to look forward to bullishly in the future? I think that there is more willingness for traders to see that the bullishness is in the past, and this might now be selling opportunities to take those profits. So we do see double-digit down days. Every day is either double-digit up or double-digit down. It's, I think it's partially related to that export buying, but it might also be very much, as you mentioned, the weather market, particularly South American weather. Well, that's the thing. As we talk a little bit about the soybean market, we did start to see some news that Brazil might be getting some moisture as we look out ahead over the next week to 10 days. Elaine, I mean, how much downside risk is there in soybeans in the near term? Well, I don't think that the market is going to completely fall apart because all of the bullishness that got us this $1.50 up is still there. I mean, it's it's still legitimately a tight supply and demand scenario. And it won't be until February, let's say, and perhaps the middle of February or late February by the time these sort of late planted Brazilian soybeans are really going to come onto the global market. So for actual export shipments, you know, I think we've got some time here where the United States can enjoy these globally high soybean prices. We've talked a lot about harvest season, and of course, grain supply is a huge part of pricing, but so is grain demand, and a key component of that for corn is the ethanol market. What are your thoughts on ethanol now that we're six months, seven months into this pandemic season? Yeah, now I feel like we have seen the whole uh, story play out. 
there was a bit of that V-shaped recovery, you know, when the ethanol demand for corn or ethanol production numbers absolutely dropped off at the end of April and then popped right back up to an, an almost symmetrical degree. But once you hit the summer driving season, it never fully recovered. We never got back to the million barrels per day that we were producing back in January or at the end of 2019. It seems to have just plateaued there. Summer driving season is over. People who are working from home are working from home. There just doesn't seem to be as much consumer demand for driving fuel overall. And that's showing up in a plateauing ethanol production chart. And of course, that plays into corn demand there also. And we, and we do see that in the supply and demand figures. If you don't have that extra boost, you're going to continue to have, you know, sufficient ending stocks. Right. Yeah. Ethanol really helps pull down the supply of, of corn in storage around the country. And I, I want to take a turn real quick to talk about the wheat market. You know, one of the things we often refer to when we're talking wheat is the strength of the U.S. dollar. And even though it's been weak relatively here for the past two or three months, it is starting to find a little strength. And yet the wheat market seems to be holding in there. Elaine, what are your thoughts? Absolutely. And I do think on a day-to-day basis, that's probably the number one driver and what determines the direction of the wheat market, wheat futures on any given day. But long term, we have to expect that U.S. dollar to remain cheaper for longer. All of the indications from the U.S. Federal Reserve and from interest rates uh, looking forward is that there's not going to be the sort of bullishness in that dollar. It will be kept down by immense support from the United States Federal Reserve. So a lower dollar is therefore long-term bullish to wheat, but probably not, you know, in a day-to-day basis, like I mentioned. Gotcha. Well, Elaine, before we let you go, of course, it is fall, it's harvest time, it's election time, but it's also for our cattlemen and women observing the show right now, it is fall run. I know you've got a cattle connection. When you look at the feeder cattle markets, Elaine, what are you hearing? Yeah, there was lots of excitement going into this season that, and this has been the case, is that the feedlots have really got themselves cleaned up and fairly current. We always sort of projected out after the COVID stutter when there was the oversupply of fed cattle there, that it would take until October for them to get ready to, to resupply, and they are ready. So there has been excitement that people would come in with lots of demand to this fall run. We haven't seen a rally, of course, in prices. There's been lots of supply hitting the market. Um, so prices <laughs> prices are not that great, but demand is is there. There's certainly eager demand to get these calves that are coming off of the pastures. Do you see prices starting to climb at all with this demand? Yeah, I think once you get past uh, the big fall runs, once you get folks really getting a chance to take a it, it, take stock, they might be able to to push these prices a little higher. Well, Elaine Cub, thank you so much. Thank you. Max Armstrong had the opportunity to visit with a couple of people from the uh, Farm Bureau group. I talked about Farm Bureau and the virtual convention coming up earlier today on the Saturday morning show. But let's catch up with Max, who is on the road talking to farmers at harvest time. Good morning, Orion. Well, it was just a tremendous harvest week as the weather cooperated and allowed farmers to just keep on going. In fact, both of the State Farm Bureau presidents we talked to this week were in the field at the time we talked to them. Rich Gebert 
was down around Ellis Grove, Illinois. Look that one up on the map. Way down there, about 50 miles south of St. Louis in southwest Illinois. I could see the combine in the background. He was standing by the truck as he visited with me. I said, yeah, you're you're knee-deep in harvest, aren't you, Rich? Absolutely, Max. You know, we've had a beautiful fall. Almost, you know, we couldn't have ordered it much better. Harvest is uh, moving along at a great pace i i hate to jinx you perhaps but it should be done by election day shouldn't it for especially illinois farmers well it's always our goal to be done by halloween and uh you know we're making good progress we finished the corn day before yesterday and uh we're getting into beans and uh we got a little wheat to sow yet uh but you know harvest here in in southwestern illinois is moving along at warp speed you might say there's always a lot of talk about what the weather's going to be like on Election Day. Would it keep farmers at home and not going to the polls? That certainly won't be a factor this year. And in most years, it, it is not a factor. You guys vote anyway, don't you? Absolutely. You know, we've, we've always, and in, in you look at our long Farm Bureau history and agriculture in general, we've been strong supporters of, of, of taking advantage of that, that uh, constitutional right that we have uh, to vote on Election Day. Whether it's uh, a presidential election year or an off-cycle year or even on local and, and state elections, uh, county elections that are held, you know, in the springtime. We've always participated over the years because we feel it's important to be involved not only in local but state and federal government. Governmental affairs may be the most important thing Farm Bureau does for its members. Some would argue, I guess, uh, you've always been politically active. And with people now saying this may be the most important election of our lifetimes, uh, is Farm Bureau maybe even more politically active than ever? We've, you know, and, and I think so. Our members are more engaged. They've always been engaged. You know, we have a, a, a robust uh, policy discussion uh, by our delegates, our members giving me, my vice president, Brian Duncan, our staff, um, uh, direction and how they feel. And that's important to us that we follow uh, what their thoughts are. And, uh, you know, whatever the, the theme may be or the, the, the challenge or conversation of the day, uh, we participate in that. No matter who's in political office, uh, what what party or whatever, uh, we we really work at serving the needs of our members out here in the countryside. You have members who would be categorized as uh, uh, supporters of both parties, by all means, and, and some who would be in the middle and say, well, we, we support the candidate. You do support candidates, do you not? Uh, there is a political action effort uh, on behalf of Illinois Farm Bureau. Absolutely. There always has been. And uh, we work with other state uh, 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 organizations, you know, state farm bureaus, uh, supporting members that support our thoughts and our ideas. But at the same time, we work on both sides of the aisle, whatever the issue may be and what it takes to get the job done. You know, I, 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 I like the, the, the thought that Zippy Duval uh, said the other day, we were talking about climate and that's going to be a topic of conversation, no matter who's sitting in the white house or what party is, uh, has the majority in the house or the Senate on the federal level. Uh, that's going to be a topic of conversation. But Zippy made the comment. He says, uh, we need to be at the table 
and not on the table. We'll let you get back to the field, Rich. Thanks for taking time to talk to us here from your farm. I guess actually you're closer to St. Louis than you are Chicago where you farm, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. We're just 50 miles or 60 miles south uh, of St. Louis, and uh, we're, we're a little over 300 miles from Chicago. And what, what happens in those cities? Uh, it does affect uh, your farmers hundreds of miles away, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, we're very, um, you know, you talked about working on both sides of the aisle, whatever party's in power. And, and here in Illinois in particular, we have a number of congressmen and women that represent the collar districts and Chicago Cook County. Um, and we've, we, you know, our county farm bureaus and adopt a legislator program have worked with those folks and we build relationships that gives us access to them to give an, uh, us an opportunity to tell about our members' points of view and our policy going forward. Well, thanks a lot, Rich, for your time. He's the president of the Illinois Farm Bureau, working out of their office at Bloomington, Illinois, but he's in southern Illinois. I mean, Ellis Grove, you know, Oregon, you'll hear people talking about, uh, well, you know, down around uh, Champaign in southern Illinois, or down around Springfield in southern Illinois. No, that's that's not southern. But where Rich is, is southern if you go down through there, oh, it'd be northwest of Carbondale, between Carbondale and St. Louis. Or on the Missouri side of the river, you would go from St. Louis down to Cape Girardeau. Well, split the distance there and cross the river from uh, east of St. Genevieve, Missouri. That's where Ellis Grove, Illinois is. Down around towns like Evansville, Illinois, Chester, Illinois, uh, Sparta, Illinois. Well, then we made the trip to Minnesota to talk with the president of the Minnesota Farm Bureau. Kevin Papp also was in the field. The moment the screen came up, I could tell he was hard at work in harvest. We are in the cab. We're uh, done with soybeans, and we're on day 14 of, of total harvest. So four days of corn under our belt. Well, how's it gone, and how are your crop yields, Kevin? Boy, I tell you, it's a little cloudy right now uh, today, but it's been great weather. A uh, little bit of rain here and there, but great weather, um, great crops, uh, some of the best beans I've ever combined. Corn is looking good. Uh, weather's been cooperating. Price is, of course, never where we want it to be, but certainly respectable. And uh, lots of great things going on in agriculture. Well, since you offered the fact that it was the best soybean crop you ever harvested, I need to ask you, what kind of yields are you talking about? Well, for Minnesota, it's certainly significantly above APHs, uh, probably 10 to 15 bushels above APH. So a lot of soybean fields averaging in those 70s, uh, which is, is pretty good for us here in southern Minnesota. That is, by all means. Well, it's not too many days away, the election, and I'm sure it's on your radar screen and many other members of the Minnesota Farm Bureau. Uh, how do you look at this this opportunity? You know, some people coming up to the election say, oh, my goodness, this is this is terrible. Things can fall apart. Others say, my goodness, this uh, offers the hope of change. We're optimistic about it. How do you look at it? Well, Minnesota Farm Bureau, we're over 100 years old, as American Farm Bureau is, and we certainly understand you've got to be engaged in that process. And whether it's engaged at your local township, uh, county level, or whether it's at the state or the national level, we've got to be at the table. And one way to be at the table is to understand the candidates, what their understanding of agriculture is and rural issues, and then also uh, what the understanding is and their track records have been in the past. So you've got to take the time, got to do the due diligence, and you've got to be engaged in the election. There's just no two ways about it. 
We didn't talk about it when we visited with Rich Gebert a few minutes ago, but they have a major tax issue on the ballot in the state of Illinois. Are there any major statewide issues of interest to the Minnesota growers on your ballot? Really nothing statewide as far as uh, items like that. We've got all 201 legislators up, of course, uh, from the state. Um, So a lot of that going on. But really the national races are probably the ones taking up most of the, the space. Do you still have some good supporters in the state legislature? You're you're in a state that has a big metropolitan area, and we often find that those big cities wield a lot of power in the the laws of any particular state. But do you still have good ag supporters? We've got great ag supporters on both sides of the aisle. And it's the important thing and really why some of the other committees, some of the other parts of uh, the legislature could learn from the ag committees. we're pretty good at working together, both Republicans and Democrats, because we have to. We can't get anything done um, fighting each other, so we've got to work together, and uh, we're going to continue to do that. You know, Minnesota, we are the only legislature in the United States that has a Republican Senate and a Democratic House. All others are, are the same party, so we're really the true mixed legislature. It's interesting to hear that. A lot of people talk about the farm vote and how much it matters. And yet many of us look at how small a segment of the population the actual on farm segment of our country is. Talk about the relevance of the farm vote. Why is it significant as you see it? Well, it is significant, but I think it's not so much the farm vote. Um, It's not the farmer's vote. It's agriculture vote agriculture is much more than just farming uh, but it's not so much just agriculture it's rural it's rural america so things in agriculture uh, adding value uh, whether it's through international trade whether it's through animal agriculture whether it's through uh, value-added renewable fuels the biofuels that's not important not only important to farmers but that's important to those farm communities as well That's Kevin Papp. Garden City, Minnesota is his town. I believe that's Blue Earth County. Up there somewhere between Albert Lee and Mankato, Minnesota, southern part of the state. Good agricultural area. He's president of the Minnesota Farm Bureau. And yeah, as you notice, we talked crops, but Oregon in this election year, it's hard not to talk about what's going on in early November and how the farmers are indeed very much interested in and involved in that election process. Three minutes before 6 o'clock news time here on WGN Radio. And a quick look at the numbers in the grain market and the livestock market where we'll start trading on Monday. Let's look at grain first of all. The uh, March wheat or the December wheat contract ended up eight and a quarter cents yesterday. Six dollars, 26 and a quarter cents a bushel. December corn ended down one and a quarter cents a bushel. It'll start trading Monday at 402 and a half. And the November soybean contract dropped 11 and a half cents on the close yesterday, which means Monday the soybean contract will start trading $10.50 and three quarter cents a bushel. And in livestock futures, the December lean hog contract ended 10 cents a hundredweight lower. 
That means Monday we'll start trading at $69.77. The October live cattle contract dropped 27 cents a hundredweight yesterday, ending at $107.50. And the October feeder cattle contract down 85 cents a hundredweight, which means on Monday we'll start trading at $138.07 a hundredweight. Fascinating world, particularly this time of the year with all that's going on, the coronavirus situation, the political campaigns. I sometimes, after I watch the political commercials, wonder if there's any.